Bandwidth for Cloth Talk is provided by the Scout History Project. Join us at www.scouthistory.net. Cloth Talk, number 22. This is like deja vu all over again. Welcome to Cloth Talk. I'm Tim Hall, and online with us is Ben Killen. Ben, it's just been one of those weeks. Seems like just about everything I did at some point every day this week had a problem. And it began yeah. with, you know, uh, forget leaving my cell phone and uh, at, at, at the house one day. And Yeah, and then following that, the very next day, I did the exact same thing and left mine at home. Uh, and, and so we were laughing at one another for that. And then... Uh, you, you you know what happened next? Maybe you should. I'm I'm a little too embarrassed to tell. Oh you man, that. we had the, a wonderful interview with someone that we had tried uh, tr- been trying to uh, interview since like show number two or three, and finally our schedules meshed up, and we had this terrible technical glitch, and uh, we d- we finished the recording, and uh, you said, well, why don't we save that and check it? And I said, that's always a good idea, and we saved it, and there was a 40 minute file of silence. <laughs> yeah, which is not funny at all. Yeah, it was not funny at the time at all, and we were really starting to panic. And, it was know. it was embarrassing, but uh, Mr. Kurt Dunn uh, gave us a second chance, and and we did uh, get this wonderful interview. What a collector, and uh, what a fantastic uh, individual! And uh, you can go ahead and set your browsers to www.kurtdunn.com and just take a look at what a great site out there. A lot of information. At, out at Kirk's site, and we really look forward to hearing from Kirk. Coming up later in the show, we've got John Pinnell. John's got his finger on the pulse of the collecting community this week. And uh, Brandon Ellis is, appears with the uh, traderies that are coming up, and we, we kind of hear from a uh, site review from Beep Beep. So all that's coming up. Uh, ben, uh, what all have you been up to this week? It was, it's just been a really long... Uh, Long, uh, you know, week for me with all these tripwires set up, and I've managed to hit every one of them. <laughs> yeah, I think I've been right there with you, just catching them all right after you get done with them, I think. Well, we have an old friend back. Mr. Brandon Ellis uh, is back, and he's going to tell us about upcoming traderies throughout the uh, nation. So, uh, Brandon, what do you got for us? All right, Ben. Well, what I've got for you right now is the upcoming traderies for February. And uh, beginning on the weekend of the 2nd and 3rd, we have the Crossroads of America Memorabilia Auction and Traderie, which will be held at the Indiana State Fairgrounds in Indianapolis, Indiana. On the weekend of the 9th and 10th, we have the Sunshine Tradery, which will be held at Camp Down in Windermere, Florida. Also on the 9th and 10th, there is the Mid-Missouri Tradery, which will be held at First Baptist Church in Columbia, Missouri. Saturday the 10th, we have the 5th Annual Friends of J.N. Webster Tradery, which will be held at the Loyal Order of Moose Hall in Bozdra, and forgive me if I misspell that, according to the information, it's near Norwick in Connecticut. We have the... 10th Annual Western Washington Tradery on Saturday the 17th, which will be held at the Mercer Island Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. And on the weekend of the 24th, I'm sorry, the 23rd and 24th, we have the Lodge Number no. 2, Sakawit, Sakawit, I'm murdering these names, I'm sorry guys, East Coast Tradery, which will be held on U.S. Highway 1 South in Monmouth Junction, New Jersey. And if you guys head on over to the Cloth Talk homepage, you'll find a link to the wiki, which will have all the information for the upcoming traderies for February and a few months out. And we'll try to keep regular updates on the show and let you know what's going on in the world of trading. If you have any information about a tradery coming up in your area and you'd love for us to get the word out, just send an email to brandon at clothtalk.com, and I'll make sure your information gets posted. If you would, just make sure there's your name, or at least the contact information, uh, dates, locations, and anything you can think of that might encourage people to come out, possibly admissions or table prices. So I hope it helped out, guys, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you with your traderie information. 
And for a web page review, let's visit with Beep Beep. Hey, I ran across a good site. It's called uh, the Scout Patch Collector's Base Camp. It's been redone recently, and it was opened in November 2001. It's owned by Glenn Chase, and he's building it and building, and it's growing very quick. It houses everything from a Google custom search for anything Scout-related patches to OA ref- online OA references, jamborees, blogs and podcasts, web rings, patch dealers and manufacturers, traderies, and also international collecting. So it's a really good site, and go check it out, patchcamp.com. So www.patchcamp.com. Sounds like a great place to uh, maybe find out more if you're really interested in uh, patch collecting. Thanks, Beep. And let's visit with uh, John Pinnell of OAimages.com. John, how are you doing? Oh, fine, thank you. Welcome to Cloth Talk again. Uh, man, I've been reading on your blog. Uh, uh, that's uh, the blog at, uh, at .oaimages.com. What's up? Oh, I've been having fun uh, you know, following the whole anniversary theme. When was doing a little research the last few days on anniversary patches. And, right. you know, everybody talks about them being brand new issues with some of the only lodges who first started doing the in recent years, but lodges have been commemorating their own anniversaries way back since 1940. Unami was the first, of course, but Unami was the first lodge to do it with a 25th anniversary left back in 1940 for the 25th anniversary. And is that the one that's going uh, to be worn as a neckerchief slide? Correct. Okay, cool. Chappagat must have liked the idea so much they did this similar thing for their own 25th a few years later. Uh, Unami would have been the first lodge to do that, and then Chapagak would have been the second. Uh, as a guarded, yes. Okay. There's a question about whether a certain patch from Mentico is an official issue of Mentico 12, whether it's an official, official issue of the lodge. If it is, they did a felt patch for their 20th anniversary in 1942. Oh, okay, okay. Man, they waited a long time to celebrate anniversaries. Uh, my lodge could just barely wait to get to the fifth anniversary to to issue a um, a bullion, and and uh, I'm surprised that they waited uh, 20 years or plus to uh, issue anniversary patches. Well, I guess back then they figured it better be an anniversary, something a little bit more special. Yeah. But, you know, there, there's been one lodge that's had you beat with the fifth anniversary. Oh, really? They issued a flap for their first anniversary. <laughs> well, you know, these days you never know how long you're going to be a lodge, so, <laughs> or yeah, a council, exactly. or, so you better get it out there quick. You know, <laughs> be quick. You get it the out there quick before you emerged out of existence. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've had lodges that have done some real oddball issues. That you know, I obviously have a sense of humor when they issue their patches. Oh, really? The one. Oh, the one I'd love to know the story about is Papago 494, who decided to issue a flat for the 39 and a quarter's anniversary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they must have been counting that down to the day. I guess, for 39 and a quarter. Okay. And then we at Tava wanted to copy them a few years later and did one for their, their couple of patches, was for a tradery donation, but they commemorate their 32nd and the 6th anniversary. Huh. Okay. <laughs> What's the largest anniversary patch that you've seen? The longest anniversary? I, once again, it'd have to be one of the early lodges, uh, I yes. would think. Yeah, and, well, hands down, winners so far is Unami. Well, they issued patches for their 90th anniversary. Okay. When you have a historic number of number one, I, I guess it does kind of, you know, mm-hmm. that, that does have its benefits. Uh, the other thing that I saw on your, on your, um, blog that I thought was interesting was someone didn't get the memo. And I'm like you. Why didn't the editors change those historical numbers? I don't know. It's It was just ironic that last summer at NOAC I was commenting to people on how careful everyone you know, in charge, you know, shows, crew, publications, everybody was very careful to never use an historic lodge number. It was almost as if there was a dictate from on high, thou shalt not use them. 
Yeah, I noticed that. And then you pick up Scouting Magazine. They have a nice article there about NOAC and a lot of pictures. They neglected to mention the extreme heat. (laughs) But then the writer, you refer to lodges the way all us volunteers know the lodges by their numbers. Do you think that Ryder was at NOAC? I think so. It was uh, almost certainly the author's credits listed him as a freelance writer. So he's probably somebody who was there, wrote articles scouting. Okay, well, I mean, it, it's just he didn't mention the heat, and that's like the number one thing I remember about it. It was hot in Michigan. Well, they may have edited that out because, you know, when you're writing for a magazine, you, you want to stress the positives. Right, right. You don't want to say anything negative about what happened. It was a great experience. Everybody enjoyed it. It was wonderful. Nothing went wrong. Well, I would agree with that, too. It was. And, and you know, having hot, wa- having hot weather is not necessarily something going wrong. It's just... Uh, it's just the way it is. But, yeah, uh, anything else to add, John? Uh, that's uh, blog at oaimages.com. Uh, John Pinnell, appreciate it. Well, those are the two big main things I've been writing about lately. Now, keep reading. Your comments are appreciated, of course. If there's something you really want to know about, let me know, and I'll see what I can do. Well, I'd like to take the time to welcome Kurt Doan to Cloth Talk. Uh, and, Kurt, uh, you'll never, uh, the uh, general audience wouldn't believe what all we've gone through to, to get back with Kirk. We had a, had a little bit of a snafu for our first interview, but Kirk uh, was uh, uh, gentleman enough to uh, give us a second chance here. Uh, welcome to Cloth Talk, Kirk. Well, thanks a lot. Tim, Ben, nice to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Uh, Kirk, uh, if you, if you're sitting in front of a browser, try www.kirkdone.com and you'll see, um, the Boy Scout and postage stamp collectibles page of Kirk Doan USA. And, uh, I believe Kirk probably has the largest private owned scouting collection in the world. And it's no wonder you've been scouting now for 45 years. Congratulations on that anniversary. Yeah, I just got my 45-year pin Thursday night at the district round table. Oh, man, that's great. Well, uh, tell us how you got started in scouting. I mean, if you're like me, you started as a cub, but uh, how how did you get going? Yeah, I started as a cub scout. My uh, dad was an assistant scout master. My older brothers both were scouts. In fact, uh, my immediately older brother um, was a uh, scout master for 20 years of a mentally handicapped troop, so he was a very dedicated scouter. He's five years older than me. And uh, I got started, uh, oh, w- when I was a Cub Scout, got my arrow of light, and then uh, I got interested in summer camp staff. And when I was 14 years old, I was friends with a, a fellow named Bob Washek and his brother Jim, and they were uh, working at scout camp at uh, uh, Camp Inguanis in Waverly, Iowa, and uh, we've kind of been lifelong friends. Uh, Jim Washek went on was a, uh, an Olympic wrestler for the United States. Uh, he was a heavyweight for the University of Iowa, but he worked on our camp staff and was uh, uh, that whole family was a good friend of mine. So, well, that's great. So you spent a, a lot of summers at uh, summer camp on staff. Yeah, in fact, I, I did twelve different camp staff stints. Uh, a couple of those were were two in the same year. I think I actually uh, was ten years in a row that I worked on camp staff. But a couple of those years, I worked in Colorado for half the summer, and then in Iowa half the summer, and uh, kind of got to befriended some of the professional scouts. And as they got transferred to other councils, you know, I'd check out the ones that were going to nice exotic places like Western Colorado Council or. And Idaho, and uh, and tried to get on staff with them because there's a lot nicer working in the flatlands of Iowa. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's the way to do it. I spent several summers on camp staff as well. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, well, tell us how you got started in collecting. Well, you know, I, I started in 1967 uh, when I was still working on summer camp staff. The first national event that I ever traded at was. Um, the 1969 National or the Arrow Conference at the University of Indiana. Um, between 67 and 69, 
uh, I attended the U.S. Grant pilgrimage in Galena, Illinois, and that was just a hotbed of traders. And I was thinking, uh, you know, since we last spoke, of some of the fellows that used to go to that event, it was a uh, Galena, the little town of about oh two thousand people, uh, just off the Mississippi River. But it's a town with with about forty antique stores, and so a lot of people from Chicago come there antiquing. And they started having a pilgrimage back in 1955, and, and it grew. And back in the late 60s, they'd have anywhere to, from 10 to 15,000 scouts camp there on the first weekend in April each year. And um, a lot of uh, the troops started, you know, trading patches. And, uh, guys, we'd have two or 300 guys trading patches uh, during the idle times of the pilgrimage. And I was thinking some of the guys that would attend that event back in the late 60s and you know dave lubitz that was uh editor of the trader magazine and you know did the first arapaho book uh paul myers that's written the book on region patches uh ed Bazer that i think everybody knows was a you know worked at camp ebar in detroit for many many years uh ray lee who was an attorney and had a fabulous oa collection pete smith that you know did did all the council patches and CSPs. Forty Clay had a great OA collection. Bob Silkowski, Dave Glass, Tony Lazuski. Now these were all guys that you know have been lifelong collectors and made a real contribution to the hobby. And you know we're all show up at this little town first weekend in April, and and some of the material that traded hands back then. You know I remember seeing Calusas and Belugas and everything at the at that little traderie. So. It was uh, quite an event, so that was kind of what what whetted my appetite and uh, made a lot of lifelong friends at that tradery and then uh, started going to national events. Wow, what a place to get started and and what a what a collection of uh, would be uh, experts out there all in all in one spot. Um, ben, uh, you've got a question? Yeah, I was gonna. I was one thing I was interested in asking you is is as someone who's been collecting for such a long time and has has a really great collection. What what advice would you have to people or or young scouts just kind of getting started out? Like advice as far as like finding the 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 hard needs and and stuff like that, or just general advice for a new collector. Well, uh, you know, collecting's changed a lot. You know, when I first got started everybody was OA number collectors and I think the biggest change I've seen in the hobby is people tend to specialize more some people are interested in insignia some people are interested in their section some people only in their lodge or, or whatever and you know that's healthy and uh, I think it, it results in deeper scholarship on the particular uh, areas that are the person has an interest in and I think what my advice to an individual would be is learn as much as you can about the areas you're interested in because, you know, knowledge is power and, and, uh, when you, you know, learn what the market is for items and if, particularly if you're looking for the more difficult stuff, you know, you really need to, to do your homework. And maybe the other thing is be patient because, you know, with eBay and a lot of the communic- instant communication we have now, it's, it's frankly easier to come across some of the stuff that, you know, when I was trading back in the 60s and 70s, you might go 10 or 15 years without ever seeing a particular item. Now they're dug out of the woodwork and posted on eBay a lot more frequently, so you got a little better chance of finding them. That's uh, that's great advice. You're right. Uh, in this hobby, uh, knowledge is power. That's probably one of the biggest things uh, all the experts have said. I mean, absolutely, knowledge is power. So you know what what that item is when someone else might not, or the rest of everybody else does not. So cool. One one thing uh, in our conversation before that we uh, we really didn't uh, talk about anymore was tell me more about the tribe of Mikasay. Now I've read a lot about the tribe of Mikasay. You're the first person that I know that's been involved with it, and and give me just a little bit of history of that. I know it's an honor society for a camp. Uh, and its history is rich, and, and it works well for the people that use it. That's that's basically what I know about it. Well, there there's a lot of, lot to say about the tribe. It, it was started in 1925, and um, uh, it started by a guy named Atro Bartle. And uh, Bartle was a professional scout, originally uh, had his first council assignment up in Wyoming, 
And, um, you know, back in the 20s and 30s, nearly every camp in the country had a local honor society, and eventually most of them ended up as ordered the Arrow chapters as National wanted to, you know, standardize the program and didn't particularly uh, care to have, you know, 300 disparate programs going, and it was hard to keep track of them. You know, some of them were into hazing and things like that, and and so there was a, a real effort in the in the 30s and 40s, culminating in 48, when they made the order zero part of the national program. And you know, Ian Goodman, who was our founder, was the national program director at the time for the Boy Scouts, and and one of his goals was to standardize all these local camp honor societies. And you know, Tribe of Mikasay was one of probably 300 of them, from you know, Gimagash to Golden Sun to all of them that. You know, there's a website dedicated to all these local camp honor societies. One of them that has survived, I think there's three or four that are currently uh, healthy in that, you know, Firecrafters, uh, uh, Tribe of Takwits, uh, Tribe of Mikasay. I think those are the ones that are are currently active in, in councils. The thing that was unique about Tribe of Mikasay was the Kansas City Area Council and St. Joseph. Missouri's uh, Pony Express Council, they only had Tribe of Mikasay. And in 1974, when Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri's councils merged together, um, then Order of the Arrow was on the Kansas side and the Kansas City, Kansas Council, and we only had Mikasay on the Missouri side. I became Order of the Arrow advisor for the Kansas side, and um, the council said, you know, is are we going to get rid of Order of the Arrow or are we going to get rid of Mikasay? And, and we had several meetings, and we kind of decided what we do is try to run both programs because you had to be a life scout to be eligible for Mikasay, whereas you only had to be a first-class scout to be in the Order of the Arrow. And so kind of what has now evolved in, in Kansas City is um, the troops that, that go to H. Roe Bartle Scout Reservation um, all participate in Mikasay, but then a lot of them also have an OA program in their troop. And so um, kind of have, have parallel programs going. And um, I would say half of the kids that are in the OA Lodge are also in the tribe of Mikasay. It's a high percentage. So um, yeah, It sounded really interesting that it encouraged uh, your scouts to return to camp and to pursue not only the OA, but the OA was like a stepping stone into the tribe, which uh, it just uh, really sounded like a cool program. I mean, just really unique. Yeah, essentially the, the kids and the troops, uh, when they're first class and star in life, you know, they're pretty active in the OA. And then when they hit life, they can become foxmen. And then uh, most of them are Eagle Scouts when they become uh, warriors then in the tribe of Mikasay. And uh, there are no Order of the Arrow events held at summer camp, they're all done at, you know, on the Missouri side, they're not, there's no OA during summer camp, but um, on the spring and fall conclaves and induction weekends, they go to another camp over in Kansas to be tapped out and do their ordeals and, and get their brotherhood and participate in OA. So there's still some divisions between the two. Um, the thing that the tribe is very popular and you know, the average scout in the Kansas City Council goes to summer camp five summers, which is probably two years longer than most other councils, and we have the highest number of Eagle Scouts per capita in the entire country. And uh, the, the Tribe of Mixay was so strong, Bartle, who was our scout executive, went on to become the mayor of Kansas City, and uh, Bartle Hall and the Kansas City Chiefs are named after him. His uh, Mixay name was the Chief. And the Kansas City Chiefs football team is named after uh, H. Roe Bartle's Mikasay name. That's wow. pretty cool. <laughs> Some cool trivia there. <laughs> yeah, I definitely didn't know that. That's really cool. One thing I know, uh, Kirk, is that you've been uh, into collecting stamps as well for a long time. Uh, what are some of the parallels between the perhaps more mature hobby of collecting stamps and, and our hobby of collecting patches and, and OA flaps? Uh, yeah, um, it's interesting. I, I got into stamps because I was collecting scouts on stamps, 
And uh, the stamp market was subject to a little speculation back in the 1980s, and there was a huge run-up in the value of, of stamps. You know, inflation was real high. You know, this is back during the era of Jimmy Carter, and we were running, you know, 21% inflation. And so people were buying tangibles to as an inflation hedge. And to give you an example, uh, the baby Zeppelin U.S. stamp C-18 ran up to around $600. And, you know, you can buy one now for around $60. So, you know, 10 times higher than, than what, you know, was probably the true market for that stamp. And um, at the end of, you know, when, when Reagan came in and got inflation under control, stamp, the bottom fell out of the stamp market. The absolute lowest point was 1989, and and at that time I bought a stamp store in Kansas City, figuring, gosh, you can't go any lower than this. And so um, I owned a stamp store for about 10 years and uh, got to know the stamp hobby pretty well. And, you know, you're right, this, the stamp hobby is a much more mature hobby. You know, it's got great literature now. You know, the the literature in Boy Scouts is getting better and better, particularly some of the web-based uh, information that we've got, you know, but still it doesn't hold a candle to what, what, what there's available in the, in the stamp hobby. Um, as far as parallels in the hobby, number one, you know, you can see that there's lots of room for values to go up. You know, you can, uh, uh, find individual stamps selling for around three million dollars a piece, whereas in Boy Scout items, you know, maybe thirty thousand dollars is about the highest I've ever heard for a Boy Scout piece. So, you know, there's definitely room for up, upward movement on the on the very rare pieces. Um, you know, the upside down airplane block of four, you know, was traded on a deal that probably was worth three point eight million dollars. So, uh, there's there's some great values there. The other thing you see in in uh, philatelic items is uh, you know specialization is is so popular. There's just such a vast quantity of material you know nobody can get it all you know it used to be everybody had a worldwide collection you know now people collect individual countries or you know will collect their own country or specialize in a topic like scouts on stamps or ships on stamps or or whatever and you know i think similar things are happening in in scout collecting because people are collecting their own section or they're collecting their own lodge and i've even seen topical collections you know uh John Bebo's O'Ree collection, when you know, where he was trying to find out all the different O'Rees there are, like Snowree, Camperee, uh, you know, Runneree, you know, the, he, he had O'Ree on it, he would collect, and yeah, that's probably the the other end of the spectrum. I don't think I I don't think we met face to face. We might have at the Traderie pre Noak Traderie, but just didn't know each other well enough to. Uh, uh, call each other's name on the elevator or whatever, but we did run into this young man, um, and it kind of uh, excited Matt because he had an antique apple bag. And after talking to him a little bit, we found out that that apple bag in itself has a story. And I, we believe that uh, young man that we met was probably your son because his last name was Doan. Tell us a little bit about uh, the apple bag and that history. Well, I, I planted that on him. You know, it's kind of like putting a ring of baloney around your kid so the neighborhood dogs to play with him. I gave him that old apple bag full of patches to, to run around and trade at the NOAC with. And, and you guys spotted it, and I figured a lot of the, the, the old-time traders would, and it would be an item to strike up some conversation. But, you know, the way we got those apple bags was at the 1985 National Jamboree, and apparently what had happened was Apple had a new product out, and they manu- had a bag manufactured they thought would fit it, and it, it turned out that the item wouldn't fit in the bag, and so they were left with twenty or twenty-five thousand of these uh, real nice padded bags with a you know arm strap on them, and didn't have anything to do with them. So uh, they decided they were going to donate them to the Boy Scouts. So at the eighty-five Jamboree, there were several locations around the trading post where they set these bags out, and you had to stand in line. You know, and the lines went for a block, and and you go through the line, they give you one of these. Uh, these bags and they just were perfect for patch trade and they had you know three or four little compartments in there and they're all nice and padded and stuff and so uh 
people would load them up with patches and run around and do all their patch trading out of them. And as soon as you saw an apple bag, you knew the guy was a trader. So it was very popular uh, around 85 Jamboree, and then at several national events since then, I've seen those bags around. Okay, so that's kind of a kind of a moniker of a patch uh, trader, it, and especially from from the uh, '85 Jambo. That's pretty cool. I know, Kirk, that you have you are a big collector of of OA stuff, and as Tim mentioned before, you probably now have the largest privately held collection of Order of the Arrow uh, memorabilia. But one of the things that's different about your collection, even from some of the others uh, that have been large in the past, is that you collect all the way up to the present. Um, and so I know with all the, the stuff that comes out at NOACs, uh, every, every couple of years, that just is probably really tough to keep up with. What can you tell us about collecting NOACs and, and just the amount of stuff that comes in every year at a NOAC? Well, it, there certainly has been an exponential increase in the number of issues. You know, on the other hand, there's a smaller number of lodges that are issuing stuff. You know, back in the, early 1970s, there was around 550 active councils, whereas today we've got somewhere around 300 active councils. So, you know, fewer fewer lodges, but the ones that are active, there's several that, you know, have issued, you know, over 100 different patches from a single lodge. And, uh, you know, a lot of the the first big, ma- you know, wave of mergers was in the, in 1972, and they, they merged about a hundred councils back then. And, uh, you know, so, uh, a hundred of those old lodges went out and, you know, most of them only had maybe a dozen to fifteen issues at, at that time. You know, whereas some of the bigger lodges we have active today, you know, they're a hundred to hundred and twenty-five, you know, different issues. Some of the Florida lodges like 265. I'm sure they're close to 200 issues. Um, you know, the, kind of what I perceive is uh, you can kind of keep up with lodges pretty well. A lot of them keep their standard issues pretty much the same, uh, but then they'll issue stuff for conclave delegates and for OA conference delegates and for national jamboree uh, delegates. And so, you know, what I do is I go to the all the national events and, um, you know, I'll take a, a bunch of notebooks full of older material and trade old stuff for new stuff, you know, just try to get equivalent value and find that my books are real popular because the kids don't see much of the old stuff. You know, that kind of gets snapped up in the lodges. And so, you know, a patch that's 30 years old from their lodge, they don't see very frequently. And and it's a good way for me to trade something old back into the lodge to get, you know, three or four of the new issues to, to keep my collection up to date. And so um, at the... 2006 NOAC, I figured there was around 800 pieces issued for that NOAC, whereas, you know, 1996, there was maybe 200 pieces issued. So, you know, four times increase in the number of contingent pieces, you know, made in that 10-year period. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, it, it's it's so, it's so, I mean, it's really cool to me now to go to a NOAC and you just see, all this really cool new stuff, new ideas that all these lodges are putting out, and uh, but I'm sure you know from someone who tries to collect all of it, it's like oh, there's so much. <laughs> I would think. Oh, it would, yeah, it would... yeah. What I do is I, I post my list on the website, like my 2006 needs, and you know I've got about two thirds of them that came out. You know, maybe 550 or 600 of the pieces, and you know that that last 250, it'll take me five years to get the majority of those, and. You know, some of them, they only meet a dozen of some of the, you know, limited contingent pieces. You know, they'll put a gold border on something and issue 12 of them. You know, you may never see one of those. Yeah, that's it's really cool, though. I'm sure that uh, that your, your collection is pretty impressive. Actually, one question that brings to mind is how do you actually store your collection? I'm sure uh, I, I wouldn't even have an idea as to how much space it takes up, but how how do you go about doing that? Yeah, it does take a lot of space. You know, the the really valuable stuff you have to keep in a safety deposit box, and and uh, you know you don't want to have tape on anything. So, you know, I've I've used the plastic pages, and I've found I've had good luck, you know, just putting those in plastic pages and and um, in three ring binders. Uh, 
my father-in-law worked for Monsanto, and I got about 600, 300 three-ring binders from him one time and <laughs> that all look alike. And and so I've I've kind of mounted my stuff in that, and then uh, uh, it does take a lot of space, though. Yeah, I know that uh, our friend, Dr. Flat, who who I, I believe you know, he, he has a, a big um, fireproof filing cabinet that he keeps a lot of his uh, really more special items in, and he has that... Uh, that that he just puts everything in, and he said he he actually had to have a forklift to bring it in when when he got it. But I was just like, wow, that's that's pretty wild. But right. but I mean, you're well, right. You if know, it's, well, the, the two things you need to do is is number one, make sure you keep the stuff in good condition. Don't put it you know around chemicals that are gonna you know affect the patches. Uh, don't have them in a house where there's a smoker. Because uh, you know that will degrade the patches. You know, don't put any tape or anything on there that's not archivally approved. Because you know, this is especially true in the stamp collecting business. Is you know, condition is is such a factor in value, and it's becoming more of a factor in in scalp patch collecting. I think you know, it used to be condition was not as a uh, a big a factor, but you know, look at the F1s, the difference in value between one that's mint and one that's been laundered, you know, it might be uh, five to one. So, you know, keeping your stuff nice is very important. The second thing is insure it. And um, I use that Inland Marine collectible insurance, and uh, it's much cheaper than, you know, standard homeowner's insurance uh, for the stuff. And, you know, you get a, you can get a million dollars worth of coverage for a couple hundred bucks. So, uh, you look look into Inland Marine Insurance is what it's called. Yeah, that's really cool. That's a great tip, actually. I never would have, uh, I actually never would have even thought of insuring uh, collections, but that's that really is pretty smart to do. Yeah, and, you know, you need to inventory it. And, and what I do is I take a video camera and just flip through the pages and then keep the video on a CD-ROM at my office. So that way you can you prove what you had. That's right. smart. That's- Off-site backup kind of situation there, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe Tim, if we had some kind of offsite backup with our first attempt at this interview, maybe we would <laughs> had a little better luck. <laughs> yeah, we we have that going now, right, Ben? <laughs> yeah, we learned our lesson, so uh, okay, maybe maybe we will have to deal with that again. Well, I've got a a, a quick question here. Now, when I went to the uh, 1975 NOAC, which was at the University of Miami and Ohio. There was this really hot patch, and I'm sure it had been hot before. That was just happened to be my first national event. But it was like the patch that had the most color in it and, you know, the most color threads, and it was the Malibu shark. What do you know about that? Well, well the, I first ran into the Malibu shark uh, talking to Jeff Morley at the 1973 uh, National Jamboree out west. Uh, and, Jeff, of course, is uh, one of the big names in OA collecting, and he'd worked many years down at Philmont, and and I spotted him on the thing that he carried his patches around, and he had one of these things that's called a super box, and back in the 70s, uh, Gillette and some of the toiletry manufacturers gave out to dorm students this little box called a super box, and it had samples of, a, you know, chick razors and, you know, shave cream and, toothpaste and that kind of stuff, scope mouthwash, and uh, you got that free when you went to the dorms. Well, he had one of these super boxes, and I opened it up, and it was all full of, you know, F1s that would now be worth a 1000 bucks a piece, and he'd been working at Philmont, you see, and, and hitting up the contingencies they were coming in and getting all these, you know, great patches that probably were the kids' dads and granddads, and, uh, and so that was a real super box, but Jeff was in Lodge 566, and it but halfway through the 73 Jamboree, uh, he got a shipment of the 566 flaps in and, you know, could pretty much name his price. You know, we heard these stories of people getting 30 flaps apiece for the, for the Malibu S1s when they hit the Jamboree site. And I'm sure, sure Jeff was behind that little project. So, uh, I'll always remember those, uh, those Malibu flaps. <laughs> yeah, I think that was That's, the first flap that I remember going. You, you traded how many for this <laughs> to somebody else? Right. Well, you know, the other multicolored flap that that had a, a great mystique about it was the uh, blue heron flap, yeah. and 
you know, it, it came out back in the late 50s, and it was the first fully embroidered multicolored flap and was a very popular flap. And, you know, we heard stories about it back in the 60s about, you know, how tough it was to get a blue heron. And uh, my first national event was the 69 NOAC, so I was all pumped up to do some flap trading. And, and the very first flap I traded for at a national event was I got off the bus and some guy wanted to trade my Wakosha, which we got one a year of at that time, uh, Wakosha Lodge 108 from Waterloo, Iowa. And, uh, so I traded my Wakosha for a, a blue heron and it turned out many years later, uh, I discovered that was a, a fake of the blue heron. It wasn't, it wasn't a real one. So the first <laughs> the patch I traded for at a national event was a fake. So, uh, Beginning of an illustrious career, I guess. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, the other topic that we we haven't really talked about is what's your opinion, and do you collect bullions? Bullions? Yeah. What's your? Yeah, I, I do collect bullions, and uh, you know that that kind of falls in the category of contrived rarities. You know, bullions, chenilles. Uh, you know, the gold mylar, uh, special contingent piece and stuff. And, you know, that stuff has great appreciation potential. You know, all you got to do is look on uh, OA Images and the member site and see the values of the stuff. And, you know, all those contrived rarities eventually, you know, really have a, a, a good value. You know, it may not be what people are asking for them on the front end, but, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll bear out in the in the long run. So, you know, if you can get them at a reasonable price, I think, Things like that, those contrived rarities are usually pretty good investments. You know, there is something though about, you know, trading two or three hundred dollars worth of material for something made six months ago in Taiwan, whereas, you know, you could buy some cut edge F from the early fifties for a similar price that, that, that seems like it should be a lot rarer to come by. We've talked a lot about OA, but you're also uh, into the CSPs and and uh, uh, insignia and uh, the uh, merit badges. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, that side of your collection. Um, yeah, I've kind of been an eclectic collector. I've I've always kind of been an opportunist, really. Uh, uh, I got into a lot of those areas because people came to me with collections for sale. And, uh, I would buy a collection and then, you know, try to add to it over the years. And, you know, I was lucky enough in the seventies to have, uh, several very good collections, uh, in those areas offered to me, uh, Ed Baser collected council patches, uh, you know, the old CPs and, and I bought his collection. I've been working on it for, for many years. And, and then of course, um, the Hatfield collection of CPs was probably the best one. And, I used to trade with Guy all the time and, you know, help each other out with some of our needs in the CP area. And then uh, merit badges, I, I bought Chuck McBride's collection back in the late 70s, and, and at that time that was the best merit badge collection around, and uh, and I've worked on adding to that. Uh, back at that time, some of the minor varieties like the sand twills, he, he didn't collect sand twills, so, you know, I've been adding sand twills as a run across them to that collection. And uh, region patches, uh, Chuck McBride also had a very good region patch collection. And, you know, that's an area that has not done very well price-wise as, uh, you know, the old region patches were impossible to get when, when I was a kid. And, you know, a lot of the older varieties have some value, but not nearly what, what they should be based on rarity. And I think the fact they've reorganized the regions have kind of reduced the demand for some of that stuff. And then, of course, uh, CSPs, and, and, you know, frankly, I, I probably made more money off CSPs over the years than I have on OA stuff, um, simply because, you know, I was around when they were first coming out, so I got a lot of the early issue stuff and uh, kind of salted it away, and they they become became rare over the years. And, and in fact, I think the first uh, price guide on scout memorabilia was the guide I wrote on CSPs, back in the early 80s, and, of course, that's been expanded, and, and uh, you know, David Frank's book and stuff is now the the epitome of that. But on my website, I've got the original CSP book that I wrote with the prices of 
essentially all the issues that existed in the mid-1980s. And I think it's the only resource that's got all the different twill directions that are available on those early issues. So if you collect a particular council, it's a pretty good reference work on a lot of those earlier issues. Kurt, maybe you got some stories of uh, of uh, chasing that patch, or some of the some of the rarer ones that you found, or acquired, or collected, or stumbled across. Uh, do you have any stories like that? Well, stumbled across is probably the the best description. Uh, you know, I worked many years on summer camp staff, and t- typically what I did was ran the swimming pools at, at camps, and you know, camps are always looking for somebody that could could run the pool for them, and. Uh, uh, a lot of them uh, didn't have a lot of money, and uh, so I did a deal a couple of times where I would run the pool for a week for a scout council, and and the deal was if they had any out-of-date insignia at their scout shop, they could just give me that in, in lieu of paying me money for, for working that week at the pool. And I had a couple of councils up in Iowa took me up on that and, uh, you know, gave me all of their out-of-date insignia and, and I use that for years as trading stock, and, and as insignia has gotten more popular, a lot of those out-of-date merit badges and out-of-date pieces of insignia have come in real handy for trading. Um, the other thing that we would do is, is we went to traderies and national scout events and stuff. We'd stop by the local scout offices and ask them if they had anything. And I was going to the 75 NOAC uh, that was at Miami, Ohio, and we stopped at a little council office in one of the rural areas of Illinois, and I walked in and asked him if they had any old insignia. And this guy walked out with six square cotton farming merit badges, and I think she wanted a dime apiece for them. And, uh, you know, a square cotton farming merit badge today, you know, that was 30 years ago when people weren't collecting them intensely, but I, I would guess those are $1,000 a piece now if you were to sell them on eBay. So, wow. you know, we just kind of lucked out on stuff like that. Wow. Um, on my way to the 73 Jamboree, we stopped at a scout office, and, you know, that was a time when National was kind of encouraging lodges to take the restrictions off their flaps, and we walked into the the Casper, Wyoming uh, scout office, and they'd just taken the restriction off Lodge 376, and were selling their F1s, and, uh, you know, nobody had a 376. They They'd been limited one per life, and gosh, nobody had that in their number collection. And so I had a stack of those at the 73 Jamboree that I I used and worked on my number collection. I think at the 73 Jamboree, I was down to seven numbers to, for my number collection. So, And I trade. I never bought any of those numbers. They they were all trades. So kind of give you an example of the differences back then and today. And uh, I, there, there were some sales in the early 70s. Um, just to give you an idea of the relative prices between then and now, uh, a guy named Dan Howard sold his collection in, oh, I think it was probably 1971. And uh, the most expensive patch in Dan's number collection sale was a 47R1, and he got $100 for it. And that was just, <laughs> you know, we all thought, gosh, that's just out of sight for, for patches. And um, I pretty much paid my way through undergraduate school and law school by selling some of my duplicates and uh i can remember uh selling a 313 bison for 30 bucks to bob silkowski and i think i paid 900 dollars to replace that issue a couple oh, of years ago no. so i give you an idea of the difference in prices over that 35 year period oh that's wow that's funny 35 years yeah uh ben you've got questions yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you is I know as a as a trader and in, and as a young trader uh, uh, several years ago and, and when I would go to events, I would always be really intrigued by usually it was some of the some of the adult uh, volunteers and every once in a while you'd come upon a really big trade happening and all you know you'd see all the all the scouts kind of crowding around wanting to see what was going on and see how they were dealing and stuff like that what are are any stories of of trades like that that you've witnessed or maybe even been a part of that just ended up turning into a really big trade before you knew it oh gosh i've been involved in a lot of those uh you know, these fellows I mentioned to you that I traded with at Omaquan Sippy, you know, they're lifetime friends. You know, every one of those guys, I could probably name a big trade. Um, 
Guys, I traded a, a Lodge 89 Feld Arrowhead, the Capacio Inc. A1. I traded one of those with Ed Baser one time for um, a 314 Mishawaka, and uh, that was a trade, and we had a big crowd of people around, and, you know, we threw in some collateral items and stuff, and, uh, in fact, I think I threw in a, a 473 F1, which is probably a $500 batch now, and uh, and he threw in a couple of pieces from, from Michigan and stuff, so, you know, that was a big trade. Ray Lee and I one time did a trade. I had a Boqui R1 that he wanted, and he traded me a 277 F1, which is, uh, you know, four or $500 piece, and uh, Hal Yoakum and I, he traded me a 454 Kamehameha one time. I had a a 378 Gila F1, and uh, we had a big crowd around for that trade. So, you know, those are a few of them that come to mind right off the top of my head. There's one sort of standard set of questions that we often ask our guests, and it's sort of like a two-part question. Um, so the first part is what is one piece in your collection that is really special to you or something that kind of stands above the rest that's really important? The second part would be what is something that is not in your collection that you're still kind of chasing after that you haven't quite found the right deal on yet? Well, the most valuable piece to me, uh, or means the most to me, is the 108 Wakocha flap, uh, the S2. That was the lodge flap that was uh, in use when I was the lodge chief of uh, Wakocha Lodge up in Waterloo, Iowa, when I was 18, 19, and 20 years old. And um, that lodge then merged with uh, the Mason City Lodge, became Sac and Fox Lodge. So I was kind of the, the last chief of Wakosha and a lot of kids up in that area remember me from that and I try to come up for the staff reunions and stuff but that 108 S2 uh, it, it kind of holds a special place to me because of the that experience oh the patch that probably eludes me the most is the Beluga it's uh, you know one of my two number needs that I've not ever gotten a good good crack at and uh, you know that's that's one of those pieces that uh um, you know, it kind of is, is a piece that reflects my my collecting philosophy, and that is I've never been somebody that absolutely dies to get the last couple of pieces to complete a collection. You know, I'm more of an opportunist. If the right deal comes along, you know, I'll jump on it. But, but I've learned as a stamp dealer that you only sell the items that you have in your collection. You know, people don't really care about the stuff that you still need. And, uh, you know, if you, you pay three times what something's worth to fill that last hole, that really isn't too meaningful when you turn around to, to go get rid of something. You, you know, you only sell what you have. And uh, so, you know, I'll pay the big dollars for the right piece, but only if I think it's a, you know, a reasonable price to get into something on it. And I've never thought it was good advice to pay a, a huge premium just because, you know, there's a couple of holes that you got in your collection that you want to want to fill. That, that's kind of a, a temporary thing. Eventually this stuff all comes around, you know, especially with the Internet. You know, you just have to be patient and, you know, it may take a couple of years, but eventually you run across pretty much everything. What's your other uh, number need there, Kirk? My other number needs a 154, ah, okay. the uh, Chakoti. And that one's, you know, it's it's not a huge value, you know, what, $2,500, $3,000. But, you know, it, I've never run across one in the kind of condition for the kind of price that, that I felt comfortable investing in it. So, you know, that, I'll probably run across that before I run across the Beluga. Yeah. You know, may, may take buying a collection to get that Beluga. Well, that's something you and Ben have in common. He was the last chief of uh, his lodge, which was Kaskanapu 310 in Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, you turned off the lights in your lodge before a merger. So that, that's fascinating by itself there. Yeah, that's really cool. I was I was sort of intrigued when you said that, too, because that's, uh, you know, something we definitely have in common. And I always make it a point whenever uh, I get a chance to, you know, make sure I tell people that I was the last chief of that lodge. Well, uh, Kurt, thank you so much once again for joining us and, and uh, uh, being patient with us uh, uh, with our technical glitch uh, from earlier this week. And uh, have a great weekend, and uh, thank you once again. My pleasure. Talk to you guys later. 
And with a wiki tip, let's visit with Chris. Chris, what you got for us? Yeah, I have a tip this week. In uh, last episode, I sort of introduced how to upload an image to the wiki. In this episode, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how to use that image. So let's get right to it. Let's suppose you've uploaded an image called kusashowslogo.gif, which actually is an image I've uploaded. And then you want to use it, for example, in the Kusa Shows article. What you would do is you'd go to the article and you'd, click, you'd log in and you'd click on edit. And then uh, you'd find the place in the article where you sort of want the image to be. And to use an image is the same way as you would link to an article. So you're going to use the double square bracket and then you'll type image colon and then the name of the image as it is in the wiki, which you would have chosen when you uploaded it. And then uh, you close with the double bracket. And if you hit preview, you'll see the image in the article. Now, the cool thing about the image in the wiki is there are a few things that you can do. And you can see an example of this if you go to the cheat sheet. But if you do image, colon, Kusashos logo, and then the pipette, which is above the inner key on most keyboards, you hold shift and you hit that button above the inner key. Uh, and then you can add a caption. You can tell it to whether to be centered left, or I'm sorry, aligned left, centered or aligned right. You can tell it sort of how wide you want the image to be. You can add a caption to the image. There's a whole lot of things that you can do just with one quick, easy command. And if you go to the cheat sheet, or if you sort of browse around the wiki and you, you hit view source or you hit edit, you can see some of what Ben and I and a few others have done with images on the wiki. So that's it. If, you, if you're wanting to put together a patch guide or pictures of your camp or, or anything else, you need to use an image, that's it. As always, if you have any questions or you need any help, you can email me, chris at clothtalk.com, and I'll help you as quick as I can. Thanks. And, of course, that's www.scouthistory.net. And if you click on that little fleur-de-lis with the bracket sign, that's the uh, logo for the wiki. It'll take you right into the wiki. And uh, that's www.scouthistory.net. If you're enjoying this episode of Cloth Talk um, and you'd like to check us out again, there's several ways to do that. The first way is just to remember to come check out the page every two weeks when we post a new episode. You can listen to it right here on the web page. Uh, the other way is you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Uh, and iTunes is a free download from Apple.com, and you can install it on your Windows computer or your Apple. Um, and it's pretty easy to subscribe. You just go in there in the podcast directory and type in Cloth Talk. And last time I checked, we were the top result if you do that. But I think the easiest way to uh, keep track of our show is to actually subscribe to our e-newsletter. And the way you do that is you go to the Cloth Talk page, clothtalk.com. Um, and uh, once you're there, you click on the little CT merit badge. And um, down on the left-hand side, right under the menu there, there's a little box where you can type in your email address. And if you type that in there and hit enter or click OK, it'll bring up a little box that verifies your email address. And once you do that, we're not going to spam you. We're not going to send you a lot of uh, bulk email all the time. But what we will do is you'll get an automatic email message every two weeks when we post a new episode that says, hey, Cloth Talk has a new episode. You should go to the web page and check it out. And if you're like me, uh, forgetful, um, it's nice to have those little reminders every once in a while. So sign up for that, uh, and if you have questions, just let us know. Uh, that's a great way for us to keep up with how many people are listening. So um, if you have any questions, you can email me at ben at clothtalk.com, and uh, I'd be happy to help you out. Well, Ben, we spared no expense. You know, we've, it's 2007 and we've got some new features here at Cloth Talk. And, you know, I haven't, I haven't sent you the bill on this one yet, buddy, but, uh, here's what everybody can do. If you've got a, you know, you're sitting by a phone, say two o'clock in the morning, you can't, can't sleep or, you know, you just uh, made the trade of your life there on eBay and that, that, uh, that uh, eBay auction just closed. Give us a call at 415-287-3263. And record that story. If you've got a burning story any time, there's an answering machine waiting for you at 415-287-3263. And you'll be hooked up with the Cloth Talk guys. You can record your story right there. And who knows, you'll probably hear yourself on an upcoming issue of Cloth Talk. Once again, that number, 415-287, which, by the way, Ben, is the troop I got my eagle in. And uh, that's 3263, 415-287-3263.
We do look at the logs of, uh, of uh, Cloth Talk almost every day. Well, the whole Scott History Project. We see a lot of internationals out there taking a look at us, whether you're from Germany, the Russian Federation, uh, even uh, Libya and Saudi Arabia. We see, we see you out there. And uh, we'd like to thank you for taking a look. We'd also like to thank the uh, outlying U.S. military for uh, taking a look and a listen. We know it's uh, difficult times sometimes uh, if you're stationed overseas, and we just really appreciate your service. Thanks for giving us a listen here at Cloth Talk. I'm really glad that we, we got such a great conversation with Kirk. Uh, it turned out really good. So, uh, you know, it all came together pretty good in the end like to thank uh, Chris for getting together the wiki tip and uh, beep beep for the uh, website review. And, of course, Brandon Ellis there with our calendar. And John Pinnell for his thoughts uh, out at, uh, you can always uh, catch up with John at, at blog.oaimages.com. And, of course, uh, his main site is at www.oaimages.com. Also want to thank Daniel Hodge who created and composed and wrote the music that you're probably listening to right now. Um, and uh, everyone else who's out there listening. We appreciate your time and, and uh, taking a minute to uh, enjoy the world of scouting history with us. I'm Tim Hall. For Ben Killen, John Pinnell, and Chris Brightwell, thank you for joining us here on Cloth Talk. This is Cloth Talk, bringing you the history of scouting through collectibles. <laughs>